the fact that problems are accelerating, the problems are becoming more and more intractable and complex, wicked if you will, and that to address contemporary problems we need to simply keep expanding the field of design or design innovation uh, to stay abreast of challenges and to uh, maybe even be in front of them. This is Curiosity That Matters, the show where we explore ideas that help shape a better world and talk to the people behind them. I'm your host, Nadim Shuker. Today, we're exploring expensive design with Christian Basin, CEO of the Danish Design Center and former director of MindLab, the Danish government's innovation team. Christian was also chair of the European Commission's expert group on public sector innovation. He's written about this and about other topics at the intersection of policy, innovation, and design, including books such as Leading Public Sector Innovation and Design for Policy. Christian Basin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Christian, you wear a lot of hats and you have what I might call an expansive profile. I'll choose four hats that I think define you. You're Danish, you're a father, you're a creative bureaucrat, and an author. That's right. What would you add to that? Well, actually, I'm a dual citizen of both Denmark and the US, so I have that kind of added perspective of at least the Western Hemisphere. And then throughout my work life, I've also been a leader almost all the time, which is something that I don't always focus as much on, but has probably shaped me as well in the way I think about innovation and change. This whole journey has been documented in quite a few books, and the author hat is what we're talking about today. More specifically, as a starting point, your most recent book called Expand, Stretching the Future by Design. In this book, you and your co-author, Jens Martens Kipstedt, make the case for what we call expansive thinking. So I'm curious, what is expansive thinking and why does it matter? Well, there's this amazing quote by the American designer Charles Eames when he was once asked by a French journalist, about design and she was getting confused when he was explaining the definition of design and she said, what are the boundaries of design? And he answered, what are the boundaries of problems? And expansive thinking is a response to the fact that problems are accelerating, the problems are becoming more and more intractable and complex, wicked if you will, and that to address contemporary problems we need to simply keep expanding the field of design or design innovation to stay abreast of challenges and to uh, maybe even be in front of them. So when you just mentioned the boundaries of problems, it took me back to when I first read the book or even learned about the title of the book. I had this graphic in mind of what this might be about, specifically when you use the word expand. And the graphic was about having a specific dot or point from which we're expanding outwards in multiple directions. And then when reading the book, I learned there were six types of expansions. And then I thought maybe we're expanding, you know, there are six lines coming out of that dot uh, or out of that starting point. When I reached the end of the book, I think I changed my perspective on all of this. And maybe the best way to visualize it or explain it or describe it is that I now got to the point where I'm seeing six dots or more and they're all interconnected. And the expansion therefore became understanding the different connections between all of these points. So is that type of journey what you were hoping to, let's say, uh, get to or is, is this ev evolution of, of how 
uh, I visualized the book per se. Is that what we're trying to convey in terms of expansive thinking? Does that make sense? Certainly. I mean, we are, uh, with all humility, suggesting six ways of stretching, expanding our thinking around innovation design. We want to move beyond design as methodology, as a set of tools and approaches to really put the thinking back into design thinking, you can say, or put the thinking into innovation. And to do so, of course, it's multifaceted. And it's not just about expanding in one direction or a set of you know linear directions. It's, it's more complex than that. It's about taking relevant elements and merging them in ways, combining them in ways that make sense. So for example, how do we think across sectors about a given problem over a very, very long time horizon? That could be an example of combining two expansions. Tell us a bit more about the time expansion and, and why, why does that matter? Yeah, I mean, it's the first of our expansions and in a way it goes both directions in the sense that we are spending quite a lot of time or space in the book to explain how, given the types of challenges we're facing, the systemic intractable challenges the world is facing around climate change, around health, uh, the health crises, uh, mental health crises, uh, around conflict, we, we do have to take a longer time perspective. So we are suggesting to go way beyond the typical three, five, even 10 year time horizons to 30, 50, 100 years, and even sharing the story about the 10,000 year clock that's been built in the, in the desert in Texas. So on the one side, it's about stretching time to a much, much longer horizon to stimulate our thinking and to qualify our planning, you can say. On the other side, it's also about taking a much, much shorter time horizon and understanding that some processes need to be very, very fast and uh, very, very condensed. So it's in a way, it's both, it's, it's, it's stretching in multiple dimensions. When I think about the time expansion that you mentioned, it makes me think about a quote of the Bauhaus's Laszlo Moholy-Nagy, in which he says, ultimately, all problems of design merge into one great problem designed for life. He continues to say, in a healthy society, this design for life will encourage every profession and vocation to play its part, since the degree of relatedness to all their work gives to any civilization its quality. Mm. Now, there are two points here that might be very interesting to jump on board with you. I think one of them is quality, but we'll get back to that later. But this topic of design for life made me immediately connect you know, two other expansions from the book, well, actually life and time. You know, in this digital world, designers have recently become very good at designing for human life, almost with disregard to other life, yeah. whether intentional or unintentional, but also focusing on a fraction of a life, literally minutes and seconds. What gets us to scroll more? You know, what happened there? Why, where did we digress? Where maybe design as a profession also should have a reckoning in that matter? Well, in a way, it's the ultimate conclusion of the journey of design in the 20th century, isn't it? Because design as a profession and designers have been intimately connected to the rise of industrial society, the rise of capitalist consumerist society, mass consumption. And the job has really been to sell more stuff. And one thing is that we've been so successful or the design profession has been so successful that in, in helping companies, corporations sell stuff that we have made the entire planet man-made. We're living most likely in the age of the Anthropocene, the age of man. So we've simply destroyed our natural habitat to the extent that it's become artificial. 
So that's been incredibly successful, you could say. But now, as you say, we are not only designing with material goods, we are designing in the virtual world. And that has sped up the processes, it's sped up the types of experiences that we have as consumers. And so you're absolutely right that now the combination of uh, psychological understanding, behavioral understanding, ethnographic understanding, and design has led us to drive behavior in the digital world where we're now becoming addicted to our devices, to our digital experiences, to our streaming services, to our social media. And again, that's also been incredibly successful, but both the success of design for the material world and the success of design in the digital world have left us in a place as humanity that's quite problematic. And that is one of the key questions we're asking, how do we move on from here? This has been happening with multiple consequences. So obviously, as you said, the impact on our planet, but you also work within the Danish Design Center on a few pillars. One of them is related to mental health. Mm. How did success of design, as you mentioned, potentially contribute to a decline uh, in mental health? Yeah, so again, multiple crises that are happening. We're seeing a bit of an epidemic around mental health in Denmark, certainly among young people. And uh, we're actually seeing the same in a lot of the developed countries around the world, combination of uh, huge performance pressure in the educational system, uh, the idea uh, that you can be successful as long as you, it's no, it's up to you, it's a very individualized picture of uh, what it takes to be a success in society. There's uh, a climate crisis and a climate scare that also makes uh, some young people very afraid of the future. And then you have social media and the design of that those universes where there's incredible peer pressure around how to look and how to behave and how to, to be young. And so that combination of all those factors has led to a crisis in mental health, especially for young people. And at the Science Center, we are saying, well, if, if, if design and designers have been part of the problem, we can also be part of the solution. And uh, we've chosen as an organization to advance design by taking on big problems that are worth solving. And we think this is a problem that's worth, if you can't solve it, at least addressing as an institution together with many different partners. So that's why we're doing it. It is a very important subject, which actually will be the topic of one of my uh, next episodes. And one of the questions that will be asked is whether, or the interrelation between mental health and climate change. You did speak of the climate crisis, perhaps weighing in on on youth, but also it is there a way where the state of mental health in the world today could be a cause of uh, climate change. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And that's certainly you can say, and I'm not the only one arguing this, or we are not the only ones arguing this and expand, that we have to really mm, stimulate our collective imagination. We have to be better able to envisage a, a positive future. And you can say to the extent that we've failed at proposing, whether politically or from organizations and businesses or from education systems, a positive narrative around the future, that more dystopian and more critical and more negative view of the future that we see also in surveys that most people share can certainly lead to maybe apathy or a sense that you know uh, we can't do anything anyway. And so that's certainly a risk and could be a contributing factor to the situation around mental health. In the book, your six expansions are time, proximity, life, value, dimensions, and sectors. What you just mentioned on collective imagination and narrative makes me think of language. We do not currently have the language to describe potentially what our world is 
and what it should look like, what we should do. Was language one of the other expansions that might have been in the book? And what do you think of that? Well, I, I guess I agree with your analysis that we maybe don't have the vocabulary to, to characterize the time we're living in. We're kind of searching for that. Uh, and we certainly might be lacking the vocabulary around a positive future. Now, language or narrative or stories is certainly one thing. And I think uh, some of the work we do at the Danish Design Center around foresight and, and scenario design is uh, focusing quite heavily on, on narratives. But I also think that we have to go beyond the written language to think about the visual language and think about what modeling, sketching, creating new types of universes, new types of worlds can do for us. And that's also why we in the book argue for, for the power of science fiction. And we suggest that film and culture that's been, you know, historically proposing new future visions could be helpful in stimulating our collective imagination today. So I would say language maybe is a more cross-cutting theme uh, or, or narrative is a cross-cutting theme as well as this visualization uh, in the book. And the role of culture in this is very important. It's very contextual to be able to help people imagine potential uh, futures. In the book, you mentioned a lot about being Danish, expanding from the view that Denmark as a society is unsustainable, has all these considerations of the importance of design in society. Tell us a bit more about how this influenced you. Yeah, it's kind of a, a duality, right? Because on the one side, we're arguing in the book very strongly that we need to look way beyond current focus areas when it comes to innovation. So so the culture of Silicon Valley, the, the tech culture, to look much more globally. And we give examples from Africa, from Asia, from, from other places in Europe, from the Nordics. So on the one side, we, we are very adamant that we need to expand our geographic and cultural perspectives on innovation. And on the other side, we're disclaiming absolutely that we are, as co-authors, mostly from Denmark and that there's something to learn from this particular small place in the world in terms of what can you achieve by design or what can you achieve through collective, of course, democratic action and shaping a place that, that roughly works. And so we are quoting the American political scientist Francis Fukuyama's article, Getting to Denmark, as a more of a metaphor for the fact that any society or any country can achieve something good and meaningful together if it decides to do so. So that does not mean that anybody should be like Denmark, but that it is possible, and we would say by design or by conscious choice, to create and shape a, a, a more livable society, going back to the point around life that you mentioned. Christian, we talked earlier about the time expansion and the other expansions in your book. So again, time, proximity, life, value, dimensions, and sectors. Can you take us through them very quickly, but also why you chose those six. Right. So the book and the expansions emerged from a lot of conversations between Jens Martin, my co-author, and myself around the, the perspective we both had that design as a field needed and needs to open itself more and to be in a way more ambitious and certainly move beyond just methodology and step-by-step uh, -step processes and so on. So again, bringing the thinking to design thinking, so to speak. Time is about stretching and uh, expanding our time horizon. What time horizon do we think for, do we plan for, do we design for? Mostly in terms of much longer time horizons, 10, 30, 50, 100, maybe 300 years. 
but also potentially much much shorter time horizons in a, in an age where where we also need to be able to respond and react very very quickly to certain challenges. Proximity is about how do we add value to the world and who do we add value for? How do we act ethically? We have gotten used to designing for users, uh, but the concept of user has both often been about mainstream users or sometimes about extreme users. But first and foremost, we've probably forgotten to be very, very curious about marginalized communities and voices and groups that need to be included in in the conversation and in design. So that's one piece. The other piece about proximity is to remember to design for every living thing. And so how do we gain a feeling of closeness and empathy for not just other parts of the human species and human race, but also for every living thing on the planet and how do we include that perspective in how we design? Then we have the expansion on life. And life, of course, connects to this, that the concept of life is changing in the digital world, in the virtual world. We have metaverses being created that are about artificial life. We also have AI that is becoming increasingly lifelike, also just as we speak. We also have changes in life when it comes to our physical and built environment, where we can now infuse building materials with organic materials to make previously dead things come alive. For example, walls being able to repair themselves. So we have to think deeply and differently and expansive about, expansively about what is life and how we do we design for life. And of course, fundamentally, thinking much more about life-centered design rather than just human-centered design. Then expanding into value. It is, in a way, an open door to kick in because the concept that value and the value of design innovation is much more than economic value and profits and scaling and so on is, in a way, obvious. But on the other side, it's a pursuit of scale and pursuit of profits that's driven the tech industry to where it is today, that's driven climate change to where it is today. So there is a reckoning to be had with what is the primary purpose of organizing work, of building a business. And to take it to the extreme, I would say we are arguing for expanding value into both uh, social and uh, environmental uh, value and questioning whether we shouldn't put that first before economic value and perhaps even seeing economic value as a derivative, as a result of adding value to the world across human and environmental and social dimensions. Then we have a, a chapter called Dimensions, the fifth expansion. And expanding dimensions is about considering what is large and what is small, of understanding that going to Mars to design a, a city uh, is maybe not about putting a civilization on Mars, but maybe it's about learning something by stretching and expanding geographically to other planets so we can learn something about what it takes to design for life at home, not least in extreme environments. Dimensions is also about understanding the interaction between virtual or digital and physical dimensions and the interplay between humans and artificial intelligence. And we're proposing that almost no matter where AI will go, we have to find ways of working together between humans and intelligent computers rather than putting technology first and ultimately allowing tech to dominate. And then finally, sectors is really about, as we talked about, challenging the traditional divisions between sectors and understanding that actually sectors currently are in a way imploding on each other so that the government and public sector can be innovative 
private sector needs to take social responsibility and create social and environmental and societal value. And in that way, we're seeing a, a pretty magical morphing and merging of these sectors in ways that we haven't seen before. And that opens up for you know new innovations to happen in that cross-section, Just if you just only talk about public-private. The book, being written by two designers, has a very practical element to it. At the end, there's an appendix. You present the six expansions in a table. And for each of these expansions, you list what the current state is. So in a way, the state we should be expanding from, perhaps, mm -hmm. um, to the state to expand to. You also provide a few prompts that could help us. I am curious about the structure of the appendix. First, why did you only choose to focus on the current state and the expansion we should expand to? Why is there nothing maybe about the past? And how important is the past in informing expansive thinking? Now, that's a really good point. And as opposed to be practical, we wanted to say, let's start where we're standing today, roughly speaking, and invite readers to see where could they go with this, or invite, invite innovators, leaders, designers to, to see where can we go with this. And then, of course, support that process with some prompts and some questions, just as a way to get started. I think history and past trajectories have a lot to do with where we are today. I think if we had 50% or 100% more pages in the book, it would be a powerful thing to go through the historical developments, just like someone like Yuval Harari does in his excellent works. But I suppose also coming as mainly designers. I'm also coming from, of course, my original uh, profession, which is political science. None of us are that occupied with the past. And I think in that way, it's more natural for us to put ourselves into the future and look back from the future to today than it is to put ourselves in the past and look towards the present. Speaking of the future, you mentioned for the time expansion, you ask which weak signals of change should we look for? Are we talking about alarming signals or positive signals or both? I certainly think both. I mean, if you want to take or make informed decisions about the future or long-term future, we have to be aware of, of weak signals uh, of any kind. I'd also say that it can be very difficult to assess today whether a signal of change is actually positive or negative. For a very long time in my own childhood, youth, and, uh, and ad adulthood, uh, the signals of change in technology and computing were positive. And we were all excited and thrilled around the internet and uh, also social media. And today we're seeing that uh, there are some very important elements of this that are not positive. So I suppose we should take a sophisticated or nuanced perspective on the signals of change and maybe ask ourselves whether something that seems positive really is and something that seems negative really is. Many of those signals potentially happening with in Europe right now or all over the world brought up this idea of rethinking democracies. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we, we do address that in the book to some extent because we're discussing proximity between uh, citizens and elites and the rise of populism. We're also discussing controlled surveillance in some countries. I do think that's one of the biggest challenges of our time. I watched the five-minute so-called rant by Al Gore at the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos. And when I dissect what he's saying about our inability to act on climate change, he says something really interesting, which is that we are not able to make the necessary collective decisions. That is a governance question. It's also a democracy question. It's a question of how do 
how does humanity act on something that we know very, very, very well and 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 make difficult decisions where where no single culture or country can veto. And for humanity to move forward on some of these big issues, we may need to go to a point where we also have gone in the European Union, which is that we can move forward even if not everybody agrees. That's in a way the biggest success of the European Union to have a qualified majority and sometimes even majority rule that goes for most national governments, but it doesn't go for a world government, doesn't go for the UN, doesn't go for the COP. And so that raises the question of governance, it raises the question of democratic decision-making and legitimacy on the, on the biggest macro level you can imagine at planetary level. I think it's about time we start having that very difficult conversation. Are there maybe other signals? I mean, you mentioned governance. Are there other signals that you are currently curious about and that you think matter? When it comes to democracy? Potentially democracy or anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think democracy is certainly a whole stream and a whole field where there's something to look at. Uh, there's in uh, in this country an increasing awareness that, speaking of Francis Fukuyama and uh, his book at the end of history, that the liberal order in a way won in 1989 with the fall of the uh, wall. Now we are seeing that the liberal world order may have been losing for the past, let's say, decade, realizing that there's something that's worth fighting for and that it's nothing we can take for granted to live in free and open societies. So that is a major, major tendency and discussion that in potentially matters to everything else. I think there's a huge discussion and a signal around how we perceive being a human that we are just another species on the planet and positioning ourselves as uh, humans on par with other life forms rather than above them. That is absolutely a, a set of signals around that space that we have to embrace in very fundamental ways. And then, of course, there are signals around artificial intelligence right now, which highlights the issue of how do we work together between human intelligence forms and technology or digital intelligences which might be different than human intelligence, but nonetheless seem like intelligence. Can you describe a bit to our listeners where we are and what the significance of this place is? And maybe tell us a bit more, how important is place uh, in where we are expanding from? Yeah, so we are in the capital of Denmark, Copenhagen, in the north of Europe, in Scandinavia where the winters are dark and cold and wet and the summers are extremely light and, and beautiful and occasionally very warm. We are in a building called Blocks, which is actually designed not by a Dane, but by Rem Kulhas, the Dutch architect in his office, which was very controversial when it was created. Blocks is uh, quite a large city within a city. So Blocks is uh, right on the waterfront of Copenhagen. It has a a uh, huge sets of office spaces, co-working space called Blocks Hub. It has the Architecture Center, the Danish Design Center. It also has a set of buildings that are part of the community, which are from the 1700s. It has a fitness center, has restaurants, cafes. It has a huge, uh, actually a huge uh, robot-driven parking garage. It has a playground that you can jump in the water from the deck and swim in the summer. We're putting a floating sauna and floating meeting rooms on the water this summer, by the way. So meeting spaces on the on the water. In a way, it's a whole ecosystem. And the vision of Blocks is to advance the future of cities and urban innovation and livable cities in the built environment. So 
blocks that we are part of as the Danish Design Center is something pretty interesting if you work with innovation and change and, and with place. I personally collaborate with the, the three other major public institutions in the building, which are the Danish Architecture Center, Blocks Hub, and then something called Creative Denmark, which is a, an organization that advances Danish creativity around the world. So this is a really unique sort of, we call it an opportunity machine, because it's a set of about 1,000 people working here every day. And in the co-working space, there are designers, architects, innovators, business leaders, academics, PhDs. It's, it's a really melting pot around anyone concerned with the future of cities. So it's, it's really interesting and an opportunity to be part of. And so, yes, also when it comes to our own space and open space, I don't have an office. Everybody works together. Everybody has freedom to come here or not be here. We work freely from home and other places. It's, it matters, I think. And space matters. Space matters that we've designed this the space of the Danish Design Center with uh, a high level of reuse of uh, used furniture uh, that we've had for 20, 30 years in the organization. We've designed it uh, with uh, organic and re recycled materials with, based on circular principles. We've designed the space to be adaptive so everything can pretty much be moved around, taken apart, put together again. So a lot of consideration, a lot of design thinking going into how we've organized the space for ourselves. And I, I, I think it's sometimes something we take for granted. But as Winston Churchill apparently once said, first we, we shape the buildings and then they shape us. And that is also the case here. What role does experimentation play in expansive thinking? How do you know you reach maybe a boundary mm -hmm. in your expansion? Uh, and how do you know if you should push through it? So in a way, we've created the expansions to stimulate experimentation and we're inviting readers to experiment with the different expansions. So in a way, it's a premise. I don't know whether there are any boundaries you can really reach. Uh, I would challenge the reader to uh, push the boundaries of each of our expansions. You mentioned a quote about Charles Eames in which he answered to a question, uh, you know, what are the boundaries of design? His answer was, what are the boundaries of problems? Can you tell us why this part of the interview is very memorable for you and also what is the boundary of your curiosity? Yeah, so for us, the Charles Eames quote is like a prompt to underline that we have to keep expanding the field of design to stay abreast of challenges. And we, he said that in the early 1970s, it's still the case. The Eames office was also the designer of a very cool film called The Power of Ten. I don't think we mentioned it in the book, but it was done in a collaboration, I think, with IBM. And it's this nine-minute film where you zoom out from a picnic in Chicago into outer space, into the boundaries of the universe, where everything goes black, and then zoom back into the atomic level uh, and look at what that looks like. So I think the spirit of expansion is kind of in that film as well, The Power of Ten. And in a way, I have a hard time seeing, I mean, of course, you can ask yourself what's beyond the boundary of the universe. And maybe those are the kinds of questions we should start asking. I wanted to switch gears a bit here. You know, the podcast is titled Curiosity That Matters. Writing a book is this creative process through which you expanded perhaps on your own curiosity and explored it further. You clearly decided it matters. So you wrote a book, published. Is curiosity a process for you? No, I think it's more of an attitude. It's more of a way to look at the world, to keep an open mind, to... Let yourself be surprised to ask questions, to 
take a meeting with someone even though you don't exactly know what it will be about to allow serendipity to happen. How do you currently deal with curiosity in your work? What are you currently working on? Well, right now I'm just on the cusp of uh, publishing my next book, co-authored with uh, my colleague uh, Sune Knudsen. And this is about the curiosity around the future of organization. If organization is the way that we humans go together to achieve great things, how should we organize to achieve the things we need to achieve in the current world we're in? And Sune, I believe uh, that we need to set people and organizations much more free. But what does that mean? And what's the role of leadership in that? So that's my my big curiosity, and I'm, I will try to give a few answers uh, together with Suna in the new book. I had a whole section of questions around the self-leading organization and the work you are doing at the DDC, but it does seem that this will be the topic of a potential future interview with you. I'd love to do that. In re- researching this episode, I learned that you spent your youth in the USA. During your time in Albuquerque, you read a book that had a profound impact on you. Can you tell us more? Hmm, good question. Which book you're thinking about? It might be Sen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It is. Which I actually just reread recently. But yes, because I have a dual citizenship, my father's from the US, I spent time in high school, I also worked in the US. And um, that book had influence around, um, I guess, curiosity and also, of course, some very challenging personal experiences from uh, the author. But I think it's just a testament to what happens when you go abroad, when you stay somewhere else, and also you're invited to read something that you would most likely never have come across in your, you know, your own, your original culture. And so one of the key concepts in that book is the question of quality, which I still to some extent struggle with. You suggest replacing design with quality in, in one of your um, conversations previously that I read. And this concept, so I am actually reading the book now, and this concept that quality is neither inherently good or bad, it's just quality, right? And it's a very interesting take. Are you basically saying there is no bad design or maybe you know, to word it better and quoting Michael Hart, it's not design unless it's sustainable. So is that why you're maybe equating this design with quality? Is that the process that there's no bad design? It's just not design if it's actually bad? It's a really good question. I think in many ways, of course, design is contextual. And what was considered great design at one point in history could be considered absolutely terrible design in another point in history. And because design is intentional, it also really matters what your intention is. And, uh, you know, you can use design as a professional approach to achieve your ends and they can be evil, but but it can be powerful in achieving them. So I think it's a, it's a really, really difficult question, which is almost philosophical, which is why, in a way, we need to philosophize more about design. And I know that my co-author of Expand, Jens Martin, who's actually a philosopher by training originally, he uh, he believes that what we've done with the book is to start at least the beginnings of a new philosophy of design. Another book that might inspire part of our conversation is Leidy Kolst's book called Subtract and inspires one question that I have for you. You mentioned six expansions. In the book, you also write potentially that there were more, but they had to be toned down to fit in the book. Are there areas where we should be retreating rather than expanding? Well, that's an excellent question. And on one hand, we, we also say that expansions could go in different ways, right? So you can also expand time to longer time horizons or shorter ones. So I think we need to be pragmatic around that. But of course, you also can say that sometimes focus and narrowing down and uh, limiting things can be useful, uh, perhaps even just for a time. So I think we have to have that humility that we also need to converge. And I know that some of the people who used our, our framework as an ideation tool, 
<clears throat> certainly also need to you know find ways to make decisions and choices and converge after having expanded into uh, new opportunities. How do we design this in, the idea that we need to retreat to let go? Well, I'm not sure that retreating and letting go is the same thing, but when it comes to retreating uh, or converging, we have lots of tools in design for, for helping us make decisions and choices and uh, then test and prototype and find out what kind of works in a situation, right? Letting go, I think, is in a way more interesting because the question becomes the following. If you truly want to achieve long-term change, uh, impactful change, sustainable change, perhaps it is a question of uh, letting go of control, not taking more control. So letting go is probably what we need to exercise more, not less. What expansion did you have to make most recently? Where does today's Christian think he needs to expand from his current self to a future state? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. In a way, I think there are two aspects of this, right? One is time. And when you're sort of in the middle of your life, like I am, then you think about how best to use your time and how to take a longer perspective on your actions and on your decisions. So that's one where, you know, when you are in a, in a, in a job like mine and you're, you're busy with the day-to-day, -day, how do you think more long-term about your own contribution and the value you want to create in the world? So I think that's, that's one way I have to, to take a good think. And then the other one is that I've, in fact, I've worked uh, across uh, many different sectors. I forgot to mention that I've also spent quite a lot of time in academia. And so I've worked in the private sector, public sector. Currently, we're actually non-governmental, and I've worked in academia. And what I am curious about is what are the most powerful ways to bridge those sectors, to find the synergies and work across, to really work in a space or create spaces that are truly cross-sectoral. Yeah, so that's probably an expansion I'm really curious about. So the interconnection really, and, and this idea which people who are familiar a bit with systems thinking approaches would say that scaling from an ecosystem perspective is about increasing the density of connections. And so again, expanding by interconnecting mm. the dots rather than expanding mm. from one way outwards. Yeah, and in the book, we have an elaboration over what we call um, value creating networks. And I think what you see is, and again, having the experience from all the different sectors, that each sector has its own dynamics, its own logics, its own success criteria, its own culture. And if you took it from a network perspective, then each sector is highly networked with itself. But then how do you expand those networks and those relations and create higher density across sectors? And uh, the question becomes, how can something good arise from that, especially around truly addressing the kind of challenges we have? So given my own experience, that's something that I'm curious about. When you speak of sectors and when you speak about expanding interconnections, my mind goes immediately towards mission-oriented innovation, which I know is something you are working on, I'm very interested in, and I have been working on. Can you tell us a bit more about the role of missions and how you approach, well, design-driven missions for one, but also just role of missions in, in how you as a Danish design center try to work with some of your counterparts and some of the stakeholders that you work with? Yeah, I first met Mariana Mazzucato, who's in many ways coined the, the term and the modern term of mission-oriented innovation more than 10 years ago when I was chairing the European Commission's expert group on public sector innovation and been following her work closely since. And, you know, really seeing how she's been able to frame a quite powerful approach to innovation that does cut across sectors. That's the whole idea. 
in many ways driven by policy or driven by by public initiative, which can be strong because then it's also often at least democratically founded, but really leverages the power of research academia, leverages potentially the the contributions of, of the private sector. So it's fascinating to me that there is this movement around that terminology and we have chosen at the Danish Design Center to embrace it in a, in a big way as a foundational part of our strategy because we can see that this is where the approaches, cultures, thinking, mindsets in design can really truly contribute. And we are, of course, not the only ones seeing that, but we are, I think, part of a community that is seeing it. And so for us, it's the way in which we can combine advancing design for the betterment of both society and business and planet, and at the same time, getting direction and focus and uh, the opportunity to invite many different actors to work together with us. So it's been, uh, it's been and it is currently is a, a very uh, central approach for us. This show is about exploring curiosities that matter. What should I explore next? And who should I talk to? Well, that's always a, a, a really good question. I think there's um, a related concept and a related field that's going to grow in influence. Um, on the one side, it's about uh, transition design. And uh, what does it then take to, to really design for longer-term transition? And mission methodologies very very likely a part of that. Um, and to drive that, I think, uh, and now I'm also thinking about the work of Jeff Morgan and his new book, uh, Another World is Possible, that, um, that there is a question about how do we create infrastructure for our uh, collective imagination. Also, someone like Cassie Robinson in the UK is looking into that. Um, I do think very profoundly, and I, I feel that our book is a response to this problem, that we have to find better ways of of um, uh, stimulating our collective imagination. So I would be curious about, if I were you, uh, also looking globally, how do we work with that? How do we work with the narratives, but also with the uh, physical manifestations, with the experimentation, with the visions to drive the transitions to, to really get... Um, uh, not just people, but people in the organizations, institutions, motivated and mobilized uh, at a time when we really, really have some crises on our hands. So, Cassie Robinson, Jeff Milgan, Collective Imagination. Yep. Christian, Tak. Welcome. That's all we have for this episode. Curiosity That Matters is produced by me. Editing by Simon Valero from Studio 361 in Berlin. Theme music by my friend Ramzi Khalaf. You can find him on Spotify using Sundowner or Instagram by searching for Sundowner Music. Check out ctmpod.fm for show notes and more relevant resources. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter, now X, with the handle ctm underscore pod. And we're also on LinkedIn if you look up the Curiosity That Matters podcast. If you like this episode, please consider sharing with three friends who might be curious about this topic and help them subscribe. You can also help us be discovered by leaving us a review. It'll only take you 30 seconds. I'm Nadim Shuker. 
and I'll see you next episode.